Hearty good morning, Crosspoint. Okay, so on the crown of three, can we all say good morning together? One, two, three. Good morning. Good, good. I need to wake up a little bit. I'll be honest. I was on California time on Friday. Uh, we did a red eye, and it was brutal. I was, you know, you, you get on these flights, and you think, I'll, I'll just sleep. I'll just, I'll sleep. I got five hours on the plane. I'll, I'll sleep. And what ends up inevitably happening is you get no sleep. And so that happened to us, but Long Beach, California, oh my, it's gorgeous. So um, uh, we, were, we were doing a little sightseeing. This was kind of funny. Um, so it has nothing to do with the sermon today. Um, but we were doing a little sightseeing, and we were at this harbor and, and, and this beautiful lighthouse right by the Long Beach Aquarium, and just a gorgeous area there. And, you know, there's this phenomenon taking place. Like people are walking around with their phones and they're in big groups and they're, they're just, they're walking around and then all of a sudden they, they get somewhere and they, they, they just start dialing in. It's like, we're, oh, and then, and I almost got ran over quite a few times and I'm like, what, what's happening? Like, what are you guys doing? And before you know it, it's the Pokemon Go phenomenon out there. And so maybe you're here today and there's a Pokemon in the room. We want to welcome you to Crosspoint. God has drawn you here for a reason and we believe that something's going to spe- special is going to happen in your life today. And so today we continue our series entitled the nine virtues, the fruit of the spirit, the inner workings of God in the life of the Christian. The Holy Spirit lives in his people. He resides in his people. He has taken up residence in your life. If you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, his spirit lives within you. And the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the Holy Spirit that lives in you. And he lives in you in order to bring your life in conformity with the life of Christ. He wants to see, he wants to do this work in you that allows your life to reflect the life of Jesus, to imitate the life of Jesus, to bring about the newness and work of Jesus Christ into a world that's in desperate need of him. And I think, I think after this month, we can all come to this place today and say, this world needs the gospel more than I've ever seen it. This world is in need of the gospel. It has been a month. It has been a month for the record books. You know, I was reading this article and I'm gonna read part of it to you in the USA Today that that kinda captures the last month around the world. And it actually started here in Orlando. Susan Miller, who's an author from the USA Today says, has our world come off its wheels? On Sunday, June 12th, we awoke to the news of a massacre at a gay nightclub in Orlando when a gunman walked into the club's Latin night armed with a semi-automatic and a handgun and began began spraying bullets across the dance floor. 49 people would die and more than 50 would be injured. Dramatic videos showed terrified clubgoers huddled inside a bathroom stall from the gunman. 
who would paradoxically text and post on Facebook during the three-hour reign of terror. Orlando became the worst mass shooting by a gunman in U.S. history. Something so horrific that we knew it would take weeks and months to process and heal. But tremors from Orlando had barely subsided when another scene of carnage raced across the screens from one of the world's busiest airports just two weeks later. Three terrorists armed with bombs and guns killed 41 people and injured more than 100 in an assault at Istanbul Airport in Turkey. Videos inside the airport were unnerving. People tearing across terminals in panic, victims staggering and falling onto a blood-sloped floor. A week later, our world was rocked again, this time by cell phone video of a white police officer raising his gun and firing into the chest of Alton Sterling, a 37-year-old black man outside of a convenience store in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. One day later, another shocking video was broadcast on Facebook Live. The girlfriend of Philando Castile, a beloved cafeteria worker, calmly explains how her boyfriend was just shot by a police officer during a traffic stop in Falcon Heights, Minnesota. Castile lies slumped next to her in a bloodied shirt, moaning as the cop's gun glistens outside the window of the car. The shocking stretch was not done yet. The next night, we watched as a sniper in Dallas sent ripples of panic through a crowd peacefully protesting police brutality. Videos showed the gunman sheltering behind a building column at Centro College, then firing on officers point blank. Five cops killed, 11 other people injured. It would be the deadliest day for law enforcement since September 11th. And now we have Nice, where a festive celebration of Bastille Day along the banks of the Fritz Riviera turned into a bloodbath when a man in a truck drove through the crowd along a promenade, killing 84 and injuring hundreds. What can we say about a world which its atrocities are broadcast up close and personal at a rapid fire rate of speed. We've barely time to register one tragedy when another one dripping in all its horror smacks us head on. It's been a month. I mean, when I was in school reading history books, that was something that you'd think you would read over a 10-year period. But this has been one month. Friends, I know not what else to do except to cry out to God for his help and mercy. Because what we have seen is a result of people turning away from God, not turning towards him. And the answer for much of the world, believe it or not, is to continue to turn away. But we we come here today because we press in. We press in. We say like David in the Psalm 40, we say, our God is our ever-present help and deliverance in a time of need. And we are in a time of need, friends. Because we don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know the turmoil of the world. We don't know what's going to happen. But, but, We do put our hope in the one who knows everything, who sees everything, and who is sovereignly working all things for his glory and our good. So we come to him 
And we say, God, would you change us? Would you place us into your lives? Would you transform our hearts by your ever-present love when we need it most? This world is severely lacking kindness. Sounds simple. This world is severely lacking kindness. You know, what we've seen is humanity at its worst. And as a result of seeing humanity at its worst, we see that the Imago Dei, the image of God, is under assault. The most precious thing that we can have or we can see or we could feel, we could touch is the human life. And the human life is continuously being assaulted. And this is something that we know God highly values because he made us in his image. Every person you've watched on the news, every person that's been broadcast, whether you saw it on a Facebook video or you saw it in front of the television TV on on Channel 35 News, it's the image of God. And today we come and we say, God, we, we mourn this. And as a church, we ask God through the power of his Holy Spirit to, to make us kind. The, the church would arise in kindness. Because we know a little bit about kindness. I would hope so. We know a little bit about kindness. I want to ask you this question as we... As we submit our lives to God, I want to ask you this question. Where do you struggle to be kind? Where do you struggle to be kind? Is it with your kids? Is it with your spouse? For me, it's predominantly two places. They're kind of the same thing. Traffic jams and checkout lines. I struggle to be kind in both of those places. Jesus says, if you if you, your eye causes you to sin, that you should gouge it out, right? If your hand causes you to sin, then you should cut it off. Now, I'm not going to lie. I've got middle fingers on my hands right now, and if I could use them, I possibly would. So the thought has run through my mind. So, you know, it, there'd be a lot of people without those middle fingers in traffic jams and potentially checkout lines. That's a little more daring to do that there. But... Um, that's where I, I lack kindness. I lack tolerance of people. And because I get in this, in this mode of selfishness, how, how dare somebody cut me off? How, how dare somebody do this? You know, you're, you're in the traffic, you're, you're in the checkout lane and it's five people deep and you wait in the traffic, in the checkout lane, same thing as traffic anyway. Um, so you're waiting in the checkout lane at the grocery store and there's a, a, a new, you get almost to the front, but you're still in close to the back. I mean, you're still, you're a little bit further on, but you're, you're still there, got a little, little way ahead of you. And then another register opens and then they say, next person in line, you're getting ready to walk. And then the guy in the back just zooms in front of you and, and every word of hatred and vitriol and bitterness just wants to spew out of my mouth in that moment. Because that five minutes is so important. It's not even five minutes. That 60 seconds is so important because I'm so important. 
but yet before me, in the traffic and in the grocery store, are people that God has made in his image. And his goal is to restore them to himself. If I could see the world, if I could see humanity the way God sees humanity, I believe my heart would be broken by it because there's much brokenness in what we've witnessed. There's much brokenness in the everyday moments, even of our lives, that we don't know about and don't see that God sees. But at the same time, as God has seen that brokenness, his heart has been filled with compassion and kindness in order to see redemption move in the lives of the people he loves. And Paul is making this plea to the church of Ephesus. He's saying to them, be kind. Be kind. He says, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be kind to one another. And what I love about what the Apostle Paul does, when he gives a command, he grounds that command in the reason why he gives that command. He grounds the the, the command in, in the fact that not that we are first kind, but that God was the first one that was kind. Because it, God in Christ has forgiven you. God has been kind to you. That's why it says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4, Do you presume upon the kindness of God? Do you not know that God's kindness leads us to repentance? Do we not know that God's kindness leads us to repentance because if we are to be the people of God if we've received the kindness of God if we've received the finished work of Jesus Christ for our salvation then one of the things that's necessary about our life from that moment on is that we are people that are marked by kindness it's noticeable the world sees it And that kindness, when it interacts with the world, when it interacts with others, puts on display the kindness of Jesus Christ. And it's also very important because this world is lacking kindness. And listen, we could put together political programs or movements and all that kind of stuff. We could put our hope in the next election cycle. I'm not very hopeful. I'll be honest. We can put our hope in this and that. And, 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 and guess what? We're going to get more of the same. I'm not saying that we don't engage in elections. I'm not saying that we detach ourselves from those things. I'm saying that those places are places that we cannot put our hope into. We could form committees. We could, we could go out in the street and protest. We could do all these things. And I'm not saying we don't engage these issues at an actionable level. I believe that we do. But I'm saying that our hope is in the kindness of Jesus Christ to save humanity. To save humanity. We, we need a savior. The world needs a savior. 
And the, the Savior says that we, we, the problem that we see is not a problem on the outside. It's a problem right in here, in the hearts of man. There's socioeconomics, there's race, there's injustice, there's all the things that we see of terrorism and, and, and everything that we read there, but the problem is on the inside. And if we're not willing to look on the inside, we'll never see the outside change. That's what I want to do here. I want to take a look deep within. I want to, take a look. I want to be honest about some of my own struggles. And I want you to be honest about some of your own struggles here today as we unpack the kindness of God and we look at the kindness of God for us and how that kindness shapes and changes our heart from the inside out. So I want to I share for you a personal experience in my life that has hardened my heart. I didn't realize that this personal experience had hardened my heart until I became a Christian. It wasn't immediately when I became a Christian, but it was through the kindness of other brothers and sisters in Christ that allowed me to see that my heart was hardened. One of the things on the news that we've seen over the last several weeks, and it's been happening throughout the years, but the last several weeks it's been put front and center is the idea of race-based mistreatment, injustice. And one of my struggles in life has been, I've lived in this world and I've not really seen it. And I've not really seen it, not because it's not there, but because my heart hasn't been made awake to the realities of it, because it's been hardened. So when I was in middle school, I was, um, it, was in the, it was not long after the, the Rodney King race riots. I don't know if you know of that time period, a very difficult time period in the history of our nation. And my middle school was, was pretty evenly divided among black and white. And, and it left kids in the middle. It left kids to, to move on one side or the other, depending on who your parents were, depending on what your background was. And I honestly was walking in indifference in that time. I didn't really know much about it. I didn't really, was able to engage into it. I'm a middle school student. Like, I just don't want to be picked on. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't want to be made fun of. Like, middle school was not easy. And this event made it a lot even more difficult. And so you had... had extremes on both sides. Whites on this side were extreme on this side, said hurtful, hateful things to the black students. You had black students on this side that said and did hurtful, hateful things to white students. And so one day I was walking to the bus at the end of a school day. And as I was walking to the bus, I I see a black student running my way. I didn't know him, never seen him before. Um, but as I'm walking there, he, he, he sucker punches me, almost knocks me out cold. And I, I fall on the ground and the adrenaline just hits in that moment. You know, there's no time to cry. There's no time to think about it. You just get up and you try to find whoever did this to you. And so I, I did that. I couldn't find him. And in that time, 
and subsiding from then on out, in that moment, not everything so sunk in. But what had happened is I was, I was white and I was hit by someone who was black because I was white. It was wrong. But what happened was is I started to create a narrative in my head that this is what black people do. And that narrative began to, 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 to callous my heart and to harden it. I'm just being honest. And then it became even more to where I, I, I thought, I can't, hang, I can't go around groups of black people because I'm afraid that they might hurt me. And so it was just this, this kind of distant fear that caused me to never engage in the realities of the experiences of my black brothers and sisters because I had been wounded and I had taken those wounds and I created a narrative that had made me prejudice and stereotype. And then when I became a Christ follower, it was a loving black couple. Oh, they're so good to this day. They're dear friends. And, and I began to share my story and they were heartbroken for me. And they were so genuinely loving and caring for me that they let me share my story and they didn't throw stones. They didn't try to crucify me. They didn't say, they didn't say that, that I was a bigot or that I was a racist or whatever it is. They said, man, that, that's a genuine struggle. And they began to pray that God would, would soften my heart because I, I never saw this as a problem. I engaged with people of different ethnicities and skin colors without a problem, but I, but I wasn't able to dig into their world because it made me indifferent towards it. And then when they started to ask me my story, I started to ask them theirs. And they shared experiences of racism and stereotypes and prejudice that were far worse than anything I'd ever experienced my whole life. And then they said, well, why don't you ask somebody else about their experience? And so I did that. I, I got with another black brother and I started talking to him. And I said, I said, tell me your story. Tell me what it's like to be a black man in America. And they began to share their stories. And what I found in every single interaction, I'm talking dozens of interactions that I've had where I've just listened. What I've found is that there's this cumulative experience in our African-American brothers and sisters, not just one instance. It's instance after instance after instance after instance of being misunderstood, of being maligned, of being thought of as somebody that they're not. And it's caused me to see that there's a genuine struggle that I was unaware of because of my hard heart and I could never be, as Paul said, tenderhearted. And so it began to open my eyes afresh and anew like I had never seen it. And it's led to this culmination to where just a, just a week ago when we see out in Sterling and Philando Castile, when I know my friends are weeping, like weeping. They're not just trying to pick a fight. They're weeping. They're crying because they're saying, that could be me. I've been in situations like that. I've been in circumstances like that. It caused me to, to cry with them. I didn't have to look at them and say, hey, 
Let's wait for the facts before I cry. No, I just cry. When I was in uh, just uh, beginning ministry as a pastor, I was... I went before this couple that was going through marriage conflict and crisis. I mean, their marriage was on the rocks. And as I began to ask them their story and ask them to unpack their story, one of the things they said to me in the mid, in, in that, it, it just, it was just, they deviated from their story just a bit because this was a huge part of their story. They, they shared how their four-year-old son, who I, I never met before because he, he drowned in a swimming pool. They shared with me about that. And when this woman began, all she had to do was say his name. And she began to hysterically cry. She just began to hysterically cry. And then her husband, who she was fighting with on the other side of the room, just started hysterically weeping with her. And the two of them got together and closed one another's arms. And you know what I did? I didn't say, where's the facts? I didn't say, was the pool gate shut? I didn't say, were you on your phone? I, I grabbed them and we together wept because that little boy is the image of God. Philando Castile out in Sterling, image of God. The people who were killed in Nice, France, image of God. The terrorist strike in Turkey, image of God. We cry because it shouldn't be that way, right? And so it allows us to engage the issues with a tender heart that acts for the kindness of others. His name is Jerry Bridges, and he writes this as the definition of kindness. He says, kindness is the sincere desire for the happiness of others. Kindness is the sincere desire for the happiness of others. It's seeking not what's good for yourself but it's seeking what's good for others. You know, oftentimes we have these, this worldview that's, that's driven by our circumstances, by, that's driven by the situations that we've gone through, that is narrowly shaped to our own perspective that looks out for number one, right? And that's the way we view the world around us. But yet, when we look at the world around us through a worldview that says, I don't know everything, I don't see everything. And there's genuine things that are happening in others. No matter what skin color, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what it is, there's genuine stories that have taken place in my wife, in my kids, in my neighbors, in my, in my roommates. And we take those stories into consideration. We begin to look through their lens and we begin to have compassion because we genuinely want their happiness. We genuinely want their joy. We genuinely want to see them flourish. And that's what I want. In the midst of all that we've talked about, with, with all the situations and circumstances, all the issue of, of, of race and prejudice, I want the flourishing of the well-being of all of God's children. No matter what skin color, no matter where they're from, no matter who they are, in Christ, God can bring renewal. And it's through our seeking of their well-being, their welfare, that we can bring the redemptive truth and hope of Jesus Christ to those who need it most. This isn't a black-white issue. I use that as an example. 
It's just one example of many. It's example front and center. I, I, I gave you this example. I gave you my story because I, I, I think there's people that identify with me on both sides of this. And one of the things I found, we were at this conference just last week in California, and we did a, a panel where there's four black pastors sharing their story, sharing their circumstances. They say, what was it, one situation that caused you to view the world differently than the rest of the world views, sees the world in our nation? And from each of those men, they shared not just one experience, accumulation of experiences that has caused them to say, my hope isn't in the political process. My hope isn't even in America being a free nation. My hope is completely in the gospel. And that's what I live for. That's the only thing that's going to engage this world with selflessness that seeks the good and the well-being of the world around us. And our our first point today is that kindness brings freedom because Christ brings freedom. Kindness brings freedom because Christ brings freedom. If you have the freedom of Christ, that freedom has necessarily transformed you. That freedom has freed you by the forgiveness of Christ to engage with others. This is why Paul says in the just the verse before this passage, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. May it be put away from you. Stop doing these things. And then he says, start doing this. Be kind, tenderhearted. Ah, Micah chapter 6 verse 8 captures this so beautifully as, as Micah the prophet says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. But I can tell you, if you... Respond as the Lord is required of you. You will fight for justice. You will be a person that loves kindness. And you and God will walk together. You'll walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will help you engage in the real world issues that God is calling you to engage in. This is what God is calling us to. Kindness, point number two, imitates Jesus Christ. Kindness imitates Jesus Christ. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. One of the things that I absolutely loathe, I absolutely despise, is when my kids fight. I've got twins. There are seven boy and a girl. There's a fight right there. <laughs> and then I've got a, a little girl, Lily, who is just upset that she's not a triplet. So there's an even bigger fight right there. She's five. And one of the things that I, abs- it, 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 it grieves me that my kids fight. It grieves me. And, and, and fight, they're really good at it. They know how to say mean things about each other. I'm like, where do you guys learn this? And I'm like, why do you guys fight so much? They say, you mummy fight? <laughs> Shut up. 
It's interesting how my kids know how to imitate me, right? They pick up stuff so fast. And they will point it out. And they, they, they will, they'll point out my sin faster than anybody else I know. And it's revealing. When they fight, it grieves me, right? Can you imagine how God feels when his children fight? Like, just get on social media for five minutes and just smells. Just reeks. Because these people who are friends, <laughs> that's ironic. Why do we call them friends? Because all they want to do is fight. It's just a fight. Can, can we get off social media for a little bit? Like, can we take that stuff off social media for a minute? You, you got a problem with somebody and they live close by, don't engage them on social media. Call them up, have them over for dinner. Engage them with kindness. Ask them their story. Ask them how they've lived in this world. Especially in the situations and circumstances that we've just been through. When a black community is struggling and hurting. How, how about we invite them over for dinner and, and invite our friends over for dinner. And we say, tell me your story. I want to see the world through the lens that God has allowed you to walk through. I want to see the world as you see the world. And I want to engage in your hurt. And I want to seek your well-being through it. Imitate Christ. Isn't that what Christ did? He left heaven, heaven, the eternal glory, he left and he became a man and dwelt among us so he might understand us, so he might be faced with some of the same temptations but not give in to them and sin. He knows us. He knows us. And he didn't push the eject button and say, I'm out of here. No, he engaged us to the point of death, even death on the cross. Friends, imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. We are his children. Should we not love one another as God has first loved us and laid his life down as a sacrifice? Kindness is giving. It is giving of ourselves to one another. And that's why Paul says in, in, in just the passage before this, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If we're not engaging in kindness, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. If we're just going around to, 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 with this worldview supremacy that we want to place upon others and we're not listening to others and engaging them in real life issues, then we're filled with corruption and evil and wickedness in a life that just looks out for number one. This is a life that God is calling us to die to. And it grieves the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit engages us and changes us and renews us from the inside out. Friends, we are to imitate Christ. I, I want to tell you that, that there's, there's a formula to imitating Christ. And it's right here in God's word. You are not imitating Christ if you are not looking to Jesus through his word. Can I just say that? If you are, there, you don't guess on this. 
you got to see it right here. The Gospels show it to us. Paul expounds upon it. Every single word of this book is true and life-giving and meant to bring kindness to this world. You're not going to imitate Christ if you're not right here in his word saying, God, make me like you. Holy Spirit, conform me into your image. Be a people of kindness. Be a people of the word. Let the Holy Spirit work through his word and bring your life into conformity of God so that when you watch the horrific news that comes tomorrow or the next day or next week or next month or next year, who knows what we're going to have? You're looking through those things and you're allowing the hope of God to saturate your life and blood that flows through your vein is the blood of kindness of Christ. Imitate Christ. That's how we engage the real issues of our world. And we see finally that this kindness produces a fragrant offering to God. The kindness of Jesus was the kindness that God was pleased with because it's Jesus' kindness that sought first to glorify God. Jesus' goal in the redemption of humanity was first the glory of God, not us. It was first that God would be made manifest, that God would seen as glorious and mighty and powerful and good. And it's ironic how God is mighty and glorious and good when our Savior is nailed to the cross. And Paul says that that's a fragrant offering to God. It's an aroma to which God is pleased. That's amazing. No other kindness is like that. No kindness lays down its life like that. And this is the kindness that the Apostle Paul is calling us to. That we would walk in love. Walk in love. Love has motion toward, to it. It's progressive. It moves forward. Love engages those who have need. Love doesn't move away from those who need mercy, but moves towards them, right? Love is realizing that there's something missing that we have, and we can bring that love to bear. Why is it so hard to love? Well, because people don't love me. Well, do we, do we actually need that to be the reason to stop us from loving? Does, does someone need to first love us before we love them? Well, we, it's only true in one case, God. We, we weren't lovable enough for God to love us, but he loved us not because we were lovable, but because we were unlovable and we needed love. And he gave his love through his son, Jesus Christ. This is the love that God has called us to. It's a love that moves towards need, moves towards those who need to be shown compassion. And we are forthright to say that we love because God loves us. That's the only reason why we love. And don't be ashamed of it. Even if it, listen, kindness doesn't mean there's not going to be a fight. Kindness means you act kind. You're going to tell people that you love them because God loves them in his son, Jesus Christ. They're going to wage war. But you press in with kindness. 
Don't move away. This whole world is pulling away from God. And the only way they're going to come back to God is if God's people go and get them and bring them to God just as Christ came and got us and brought us to God. And God, through His mercy, showed His riches and grace through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is a fragrant offering. This world stinks the, the wickedness of evil and sin just reeks in this world. When you, the last month, it's just a smell that just reeks. But there's a fragrant offering that's provided by Jesus that brings a fragrance to the world. This world's never experienced, never known, smells sweet. Because the tender mercies of Jesus are sweet. Can we offer that to the world? This is the kindness that God is engaging us with. This is the deep levels of hurt that God is calling us to go for. And if we're not willing to ask the hard questions in our own lives, if we're not willing to go there, our hearts are going to be hardened. And we're just going to resist the Holy Spirit. We're going to resist the love of others. And we're going to walk in sin. We're not going to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, but the works of the flesh. Paul says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. I want to close in sharing this story. It's a story you know, you've probably heard many times. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is asked by a lawyer, what's the, what's the best thing I could, I could possibly do? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, that's pretty easy. Love God and love your neighbor. And then the lawyer begins to think, well, okay, well, I know who God is. I think I do. Well, he thinks he knows who God is. Jesus isn't convinced. (laughs) And then he says, well, who's my neighbor? Are you talking about the guy that lives next door to me? Are you talking about the guy that I work with? Are you talking about Who's my neighbor? Anybody could be my neighbor, right? Who's my neighbor? Like, how much do I really have to love? And so Jesus does what he he does best. He engages them with a parable, a story. And and in this story, you have a, a, a Jewish man who's left for dead on the side of a dangerous road. And you have people that are walking by him and just passing by him and not regarding his life because something else is going on. We don't know what's going on, but something else is going on. First person that walks by this man who's bloodied, beaten, left for dead, just been robbed of everything is a priest. Oh, surely a priest is coming by me. This priest should stop, shouldn't he? No, he he goes straight to the temple. I don't know if he just thinks somebody else is going to help him. I don't know what the issue is, but there's an issue there to where this priest just takes a beeline to the other side and doesn't help the bloodied man left for dead on the side of the road. And then there's a rabbi, a Levite. And the Levite looks at him and he just walks along by. I don't know where he had to be. But he couldn't help him. He didn't love him. He didn't even take the law of God that he knows in order to help someone in need by which he's commanded. A Jew, nonetheless, just like himself. 
And then there's a Samaritan. Now, Samaritan, there's, there's this issue in this day and time between Jews and Samaritans where Jews could not associate with Samaritans because Jews were better than Samaritans in their own mind. And then there's this Samaritan. Samaritan sees the man. He walks up to him. What does he do? He has compassion on this man. And he showers him with his kindness. He helps him. He, he nurses him back to health. In fact, he does more than he should do. He doesn't just help him for the moment. Let's call the ambulance. Let, let, let's call 911. Let's get somebody out here to help him. No, he physically does it himself. He puts him on his horse and he walks him to a hotel and he pulls out his checkbook and he leaves it blank for the innkeeper. And he says, whatever he needs, whatever he needs, I'm going to pay for I want him restored. Samaritan was different than the Jew, but that didn't stop him. The Samaritan understood life differently from the Jew. That didn't stop him. Jews hated Samaritans. That didn't stop him. Here's somebody who needs the kindness of God, and I'm a person that has the means to show him the kindness of God. So I'm going to do it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to watch God work in the midst of it. Listen, friends. We are on the side of the road, bloodied and left for dead. There's no one that can help us. People aren't loving enough in this world in and of themselves to help us, just like the priest. If we sought to obey the law with all perfection, just like the Levite, the law couldn't help us. What we need is we need somebody that's not like us to feel who we are, to experience, to walk alongside of us, and to give us a grace we do not deserve. And that's what the good Samaritan did. And that's what Jesus has done for you and for me. He gave us the grace and mercy of God where we needed it most. So let's engage the world with that kind of kindness, that lavish generosity. That moves at the deep level of hurt. And says, I want God to bring healing And so I'm going to seek your happiness. I'm going to seek your welfare. I'm going to seek your flourishing just as Christ has done for me. Would you stand as we pray? Father, thank you. Thank you for your compassion. God, none of us here deserve your love. Nobody. Nobody. If anyone is righteous, let them stand before you, God. But the only reason why we're standing is because you stood in our place. You were crucified and bloodied where we should have died. And God, you've given us this blank check of undeserved love for all eternity. God, thank you. Thank you. Move us to you. Move us to you. And then, God, move with us as we love this world that's broken, as we walk in love, as we walk in step with the Spirit, 
as we see the fruit of your spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control flow from our lives because it's the spirit-filled life that's produced it. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus and the church says, amen. We're gonna take communion, remembering the broken body and shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Remembering that he died the death that we deserve to give us the life that only he deserves. If you believe in Jesus as your forgiver, your leader, your Lord, that he is the one has redeemed you. He's the one that's made you new. He's the one that has given you eternal life. You did not earn it. You did not deserve it. But because of his love, he gave it to you. Then come and join us in communion. Walk down the aisle, take the bread, dip it in the cup and receive it with thanksgiving. And we sing this song because there's an amazing love that we know little about, but God's shown us just the beginnings of it. And that this amazing love would be the love that transforms the world. Let's worship God through taking communion and singing our souls out to him.